Amen. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the book of Acts, and so I want to start this morning by providing just kind of a quick recap of where we are in our text. Calvary 316, we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through books of the Bible. We're in the book of Acts, and we're going to be covering all of chapter 21 this morning. At this point, for context, Paul, the Apostle Paul, and a group of eight companions are making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Beginning in Troas, and we'll put up a map so you can picture it, this crew has made their way by ship south down the coastline of what's today modern Turkey, arriving in Miletus. And it's from Miletus that Paul sends word to have the elders of the Ephesian church join him so that he can share a few parting words knowing he might never have the opportunity again. And so he's in Miletus, verse one, chapter 21, it came to pass that when we had departed from them, that being this group of Ephesian elders and set sail, running a straight course, we came to cause the following day to Rhodes from there, Patera. And finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days, and they told Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Now let's start, as we've been doing with Paul's missionary journeys, with the motion of the text. From Miletus, <clears throat> This whole group sail to Kos, then to Rhodes, before finally arriving in Patera. From Patera, it would appear Paul's kind of sick of going from port to port to port, day in, day out, thinking this will take forever. They're looking for a ship that would, sail, that would make the 400-mile nonstop journey from Patera across the Mediterranean to Phoenicia. Specifically, we see that they would port in the city of Tyre, where the ship was to unload her cargo. We're told that arriving in Tyre, that they found disciples. That's an interesting phrase. This phrase, finding disciples, presents the idea that they were surprised that when they got to Tyre, they found a Christian community, that they found a church, and they were probably surprised because Paul had never visited this particular city. We really have no account of anyone planting a church entire, well, except for one person. If you go all the way back to the Gospel of Mark, our travels through Mark, Jesus himself took a bit of a detour going up into the area of Tyre and Sidon. And it's there that he has this incredible ministry, no doubt the legacy of which is still there some 30 years later. Now, you should note, that Luke includes these type of details to reinforce the idea that while the book of Acts focus, focuses specifically on the ministry of Paul and his role in the spread of the gospel across the Roman world, he wasn't the only one fulfilling the Great Commission. Now, during the seven days that they stayed with the believers in Tyre, Luke tells us something interesting. He says, they told Paul, or literally, during the whole seven days, they kept telling Paul over and over and over again. They were reiterating this singular message through the Spirit that he was not to go to Jerusalem. 
We'll get to that in a few minutes. Verse 5. But when we had come to the end of those seven days, we departed from Tyre and went on our way. They all accompanied us, being these believers, this little church, with their wives and their children, till we had exited the city. I love this scene. And we all knelt on the shore and we prayed. And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren there, stayed with them one day. The next day, we who were Paul's companions departed, came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. We stayed with him. And this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. Now back to the motion of the text. From Tyre, they set sail probably to Ptolemus, heading south. They stay there one day before traveling another 60 miles to the city of Caesarea, where we're told that they stayed in the house of Philip the evangelist, who was, we're told, one of the seven. Now, we're not going to deal with Philip. I would encourage you, if you want more information on this man and his unique ministry, his life, refer back to our studies in both Acts chapter 6, where we first find him, and Acts chapter 8, where we see his incredible ministry and why, why he ends up in Caesarea. Either way, he does settle in this town. He puts down roots, we're told. He gets married, starts a family. He has four virgin daughters, probably being a reference to the fact that they were all under the age of 16. And we're told that they prophesied. This man, Philip, a unique man, a man filled with the Spirit, a man who was an evangelist, who had a heart to tell people about Jesus. He has this incredible legacy Four daughters who love Jesus, who are ministering to Jesus, who are filled with the Spirit and working in the church. It's an incredible thing. Now, what I find awesome about this particular passage is the fact that Paul, if you reference back, Paul, as he was known then, Saul, and his persecution of the church in Jerusalem had been singularly responsible for originally driving Philip out of Jerusalem, pushing him into Samaria, and then later from Samaria, he gets called to this road to Gaza. But it had been Paul and his persecution, his hatred of the church, the venom he was spewing as the arch enemy that had kind of ruined, so to speak, Philip's life. He had had to flee his home as a result of what Paul had done to him. And yet now, isn't it a testimony to the amazing grace of God that some 20 years later, we're told that Philip would willingly open up his family and his home to lodge Paul and his traveling companions. You want to talk about forgiveness and action? Philip had let go of a grudge. He had seen the transformation that God had wrought in this man's life. Paul was no longer an enemy, but was a brother. But we're told that they stayed many days. And while they were staying, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, 
so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. I'm sure Paul was glad he had borrowed the belt from Luke. You know, everyone's looking out, no, just kidding. Agabus is a unique guy. And we've, we've seen him before. He has a bit of history with Paul already. In Acts 11, verses 28 and 30, while Paul is ministering in Antioch with Barnabas. Remember good old Barnabas? They're serving the Lord, they're teaching, they're ministering to the people. While all of that's happening, way before any missionary endeavors take place, Agabus, we're told, came up from Jerusalem with a prophecy. And the prophecy was that there was going to be a great famine throughout all of the world. Now, I bring that up because What's interesting is that in that instance, we're told that Agabus communicated this prophetic word by, quote, standing up and showing by the Spirit these things would take place. It seems as though that based on the two times Agabus appears in the book of Acts, that his prophetic ministry had kind of a flair for the dramatic. How he acted out a famine was going to Um, ravage the world, we have no idea. In this instance, he's making a point to Paul and he does it in a theatrical way. This man would have been awesome at Pictionary. Now, aside from the theatrics of the scene, I think we all kind of understand what he's saying, what he's communicating. Look at the substance of his message. For Paul, he says that the Jews at Jerusalem, which is where Paul's headed, would, quote, bind and deliver him into the hands of, of the Gentiles. Now, at this juncture, almost every church Paul has visited since embarking on this journey to Jerusalem have warned him, quote, that chains and tribulation await him. So the fact that Paul was walking into a hornet's nest that wouldn't work out very well, that's not new to Paul. What is new, introduced by Agabus, is that his fate would ultimately rest with the Romans, the Gentiles, and not with the Jews who would bind him. Now, admittedly, the first 11 verses of Acts 21 leaves the reader a bit perplexed. At least it did me, full disclosure. And the reason that the first 11 verses that we just covered left me perplexed was that up until this chapter, it would have appeared, it would seem that Paul's journey to Jerusalem, while we know what's gonna happen there, had been initiated by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit was leading him. In Acts chapter 19, verse 21, Luke says that while still in Ephesus, quote, Paul purposed in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Then, in his parting words to the Ephesian elders, Paul would again affirm in Acts 20, verse 22, that, quote, he was bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that would happen, except that the Holy Spirit was testifying in every city that chains and tribulations awaited him. And yet, in addition to the continued testimony that trouble awaited him in Jerusalem, in Acts 21, verse 4, through these believers entire, we're told, that the Spirit tells Paul, quote, not to go to Jerusalem. So which is it? Did the Spirit want Paul to go to Jerusalem or not? And then in going to Jerusalem anyway, 
Was Paul being boldly obedient, knowing what was coming, having his eyes set, following the Lord, following the Spirit, no matter what, or was he being stubbornly rebellious? Like the answer to that first question, does the Spirit want him to go or does the Spirit not? That means everything in regards to the context for the Apostle Paul. Now, two respected pastors I listened to during my sermon prep illustrate how differently reputable scholars address this question. I mean, you're going to find people on all ends of the spectrum. David Guzik teaches that it was the Spirit's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem and that the purpose behind revealing that trials and tribulations awaited him was not to deter Paul from going to Jerusalem, but instead to prepare Paul for what he could expect when he arrived. And attempting to reconcile verse 4 with this particular position, which is easier said than done, Guzik explains that, quote, the specific warning not to go up to Jerusalem was a human interpretation of the Holy Spirit's prophecy of the danger that awaited Paul. Kind of as though these believers were hearing from the Spirit that persecution was up ahead, so they interpreted that that must have meant the Spirit was saying Paul shouldn't go. The problem with that that's not what the text says at all. Like that's a human interpretation that there was a human interpretation of what the spirit was saying to Paul. In line with the same position, but trying to reconcile verse four a bit differently, J. Vernon McGee says that what, what, what this verse is communicating was that it was the spirit's way of telling Paul, quote, really the same thing he said before, that in a sense, quote, Paul was not to go to Jerusalem unless he was prepared to make the required sacrifices. On the other side of the argument, another pastor that I have the utmost respect for, Damian Kyle, he sees and teaches that these continual warnings that chains and tribulations awaited Paul, coupled with this clear directive in verse 4, should be seen as proof that it was not the Spirit's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem and that his stubbornness to go anyway should be seen as a grave mistake. Though I will concede right from the beginning that wonderful Bible expositors, men more educated and more knowledgeable than I, fall on either side of the issue. And many of you will fall on either side of the issue. I want to build a case this morning for why I believe personally that the Apostle Paul was in error, that it was not the Spirit's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. And the reason this is important is because that singular point will then dictate how we view the rest of the narrative of the book of Acts. And I should maybe add an aside. There's only one perfect person ever presented to us, only one perfect hero presented in the Bible, and that's Jesus. Paul, great man, awesome man, a man we should look to and imitate him as he's imitated Christ, but that doesn't make him a perfect man. 
And if indeed he made an error here, it doesn't diminish his ministry. It doesn't discredit what he did. I think as we unpack this, you'll sympathize why Paul was going and why he made such a mistake. It doesn't diminish the man. I think it actually makes him more relatable. First, I think Paul was in error going to Jerusalem because we really have no textual evidence that the Holy Spirit directed Paul to go to Jerusalem. Okay. In Acts 19, verse 21, we are told that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then again, in Acts 20, verse 22, we read these passages, that he was bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Neither of these two verses specifically say that the Holy Spirit told Paul to go. If you start studying the book of Acts in the context of the Spirit leading people, the Spirit's very clear over and over and over again. We have passages where we're told, the Spirit said, go. When Paul and Barnabas first embarked on their initial missionary journey, as they're praying with the other pastors there in Antioch, we're told that the Holy Spirit said to them, go. So in this instance, we might be splitting hairs, I'll admit, but we're not specifically told that the Holy Spirit was saying to Paul, especially with the kind of clarity and directness we find in Acts 21 verse 4 when the Spirit emphatically tells Paul, there's no ambiguity to it, not to go to Jerusalem. In actuality, the case can be made that since the final destination laid on Paul's heart in Acts 19 was the city of Rome, and that going to Macedonia, Achaia, and Jerusalem were just stops along the way to the ultimate destination, that what was actually being purposed in the Spirit might not have necessarily demanded a stop in Jerusalem, but had had Rome as its central focus. If you'll remember, when Paul tried to sail from Achaia to Jerusalem, remember what happened? He caught wit of an assassination plot that if he got on the boat, they were gonna throw him overboard. So he has to totally reroute his plan. It could be that that was God's way of saying, no, 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 no. You're supposed to go another way. You're supposed to go to another place. Keep in mind, Paul has, has, has kind of struggled at times with being sensitive to where the spirit was leading him, right? He, he wanted to go to Asia, if you recall, his second missionary journey. But what happened? He was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. So what does he do? He tries another route to get to Asia. And at that point, he's resisted again by the Holy Spirit. And he's like, oh, wait, at this point, I recognize I shouldn't be going that way. Took two times. And then he gets the vision of the Macedonian. And he goes the opposite direction, taking the gospel into Europe. Beyond this, Acts 20 could be seen as evidence that Paul's plan to go to Jerusalem was born of a spirit but was in actuality his own spirit, his own self-desire. Look at it again. We'll put it on the screen. I want to point something out you might not have noticed. According to his own words, Paul was bound in the spirit. Do you notice something interesting there? It's lowercase, which means that the translators, though the word's pneuma, and it's the same word we'll find later on with Holy Spirit, which is capitalized, same word, but the translators themselves Notice that there's something different in context to the reference of the Spirit here as opposed to the Holy Spirit, which is capitalized. Meaning, the translators think that this is Paul's self-desire to go to Jerusalem. 
since we can say with absolute confidence that the Holy Spirit would never contradict himself. And that Acts 21 verse 4 presents stronger textual evidence that the Spirit was in actuality telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. It's my opinion that these passages in Acts 19 and 20 should be seen as an expression of Paul's personal desire to visit Jerusalem as opposed to the Holy Spirit's intentional directive. Let me give you the second reason that I think Paul was in error going to Jerusalem. No one else agreed with Paul's belief that the Spirit was actually leading him to Jerusalem. Not one person agrees with him. Look at verse 12. We're told that when we heard these things, Luke writing, the things communicated by Agabus, both we and those from that place, that being Philip and his prophetic virgin daughters, we pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. So Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. Now, it would seem from the text here that Agabus' prophetic word finally sent Paul's friends kind of over the edge, knowing what was coming, and it would seem sensing that the Spirit might actually be trying to stop Paul from going. Luke says both we and those from that place pleaded. It's a passionate plea for Paul not to go. And yet, Luke says Paul would not be persuaded saying he was not only ready to be bound, but to die, that's what the Lord asked. Now, though it was clear that no one could talk Paul out of his plans, this phrase, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done, in the Greek, it intends to leave the reader with the impression that everyone kind of just decided to agree to disagree agreeably, kind of trusting that while they might have believed Paul was being stubborn and Paul believed he was following the Spirit, either way, God's will would be accomplished regardless of who was right and who was wrong. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand. I totally get the point that's often made with this passage, that the Holy Spirit never leads one man through the directives of another. We all have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we all have to trust that the Spirit will lead us and guide us. If you ever have someone come to you and say, the Holy Spirit told me that you're supposed to go to the Sudan. If the Holy Spirit hadn't told you that, I'd suggest not going. The Spirit will speak to you. You don't need someone else to act as a priest for the Spirit to speak to them to then speak to you. So while that's true, on the flip side to it, Scripture does constantly advise to the benefit of what? Of trusted friends affirming the Holy Spirit's leading. If you come to all of your closest friends and family and you're like, I really feel the Lord, the Holy Spirit, he's speaking to my heart and he's impressing on my heart that, that that I should go to the Sudan. I saw this commercial on television and these kids are starving and I feel like I should sell everything and I should take my three uh, small children and we should go to the Sudan to serve Jesus. Now you might 100% be, be, be listening to the Holy Spirit 
And if you are, what I've found is that there is comfort in a multitude of counselors, that you will have other people, friends, pastors, uh, uh, people connected with you that will say, you know what, that's the craziest, stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. But yeah, you should go. I agree with you. I can't explain it. What's interesting with this passage, what's alarming, is that there was not a single person coming to Paul's defense. There was not a single person stepping up and saying, you know what, guys, chains and tribulations await him. This could get gnarly. This could get hectic. But you know what? We need to support our brother because he's following the Holy Spirit. And we'll follow him as he follows. There was not one person stepping up to Paul's defense. As a matter of fact, it would seem that every other person but Paul had the conviction that the Spirit was telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Thirdly, I also think the reason Paul's in error is that going to Jerusalem to reach the Jews, it was fundamentally not in line with God's call for Paul's life. Now, for starters, there's no question that, the, that, that Paul cared deeply for the Hebrew people. I mean, Paul's love for the Jews, his countrymen, Israelites, I mean, it was a kind of love for another group of people that borderlines on being nuts, frankly. In Romans 9, verse 3, Paul would even write this. I wish that I myself would be accursed from Christ for my brethren. And then he goes on to say, for my brethren to come into a saving relationship with Jesus. Paul's like, I would go to hell if it meant that, that people would open their eyes. I love you. I think you know what I'm gonna say and you feel the same way about me, so we'll just agree on that point, that what Paul's saying here borderlines on crazy. Now, the problem was never Paul's heart, his love for the Jewish people, but boiled down to the reality that Jesus had never called him to preach the gospel to the Jews, but had very specifically called him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, every time Paul attempted to preach and reach the Jews, it never ended well, right? I mean, we've been traveling through Acts for months now. It never ended right. Beginning with Damascus, his first ministry experience, they wanna kill him. He goes to Jerusalem, second ministry experience, ministering, they wanna kill him. Then they're like, dude, you just got to go away for a decade. Go away. And then where? He, he's called back to Antioch, a church primarily of Gentiles, and then there's fruit. And then as he's working his way around the world preaching the gospel, he would go to Jews, right? And they would want to kill him. They would riot, throw stones at him. And then he would go to the Gentiles, and they would be like, this is word from heaven. And they would respond, and it would be revival, Paul had a heart for the Jews, but his calling was to the Gentiles. As a matter of fact, he even knew this. In Romans 11, verse 13, Paul says of himself, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. See, the fundamental problem in this situation was that Paul was heading to Jerusalem, hoping for the opportunity to share the gospel with his countrymen. And while in and of itself, that's a good and noble ambition, it wasn't what he had been called by God to do. Fourthly, 
Paul's time in Jerusalem would prove to be unfruitful and entirely counterproductive. Look at verse 15. After those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, brought with them a certain mason of Cyprus, an early disciple of whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James. And all the elders were present. And, he, and when he had greeted them, Paul told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they all glorified the Lord. It's a sweet scene, right? Our motion, finally from Caesarea, Paul and the crew make their way to Jerusalem. They arrive. The next day they go and they meet with James and the elders where they told in detail everything God had done. This, this phrase in detail literally means every single detail. Paul recounts of what God had done through his ministry and the Gentile world, most of which we find here contained in the book of Acts. So here's Paul sharing his heart, letting these guys know the, 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 the outpouring of the Spirit in the Gentile world. They're glorifying the Lord. It's just a sweet scene. It's a sweet moment. And then it's now James and the elders turn to speak, and they kind of ruin it. Verse 20. So they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews, literally thousands of Jews, there are who have believed, and they are also zealous for the law, but they've been informed about you, that you teach all of the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Well, well, one moment, they're glorifying the Lord of the incredible work that God is doing among the Gentiles. Their response, I don't know, the way that I read it, it kind of reveals an undercurrent maybe of bitterness. It's almost as if this is kind of how it rolls. Paul, that's awesome. That's cool, man. God's doing great things through the Gentiles. But have you seen what God's doing here? I mean, you've seen all the Jews that are also believing? I mean, there's thousands of them. I don't know how many Gentiles you got. We got thousands of Jews who have believed. It's kind of as though they're comparing ministry. You know, as a pastor, I recently went to a pastor's conference. That's one of the most annoying things about pastor's conferences is because someone will come and ask you how things are going with your church, not really because they care at all, but they want as a response to whatever you have to say to be their opportunity to tell you how much better God is doing things at their church. Seriously, this is not new. This happened here and it continues to happen. Do you also notice another significant problem in something that they said? Though a great many Jews had accepted Jesus, we're told that these Jews were all zealous for the grace of God. No, they were zealous for the law. While accepting Jesus as their Messiah, this kind of reveals to us that many of them had not fully accepted Jesus as their Savior. 
which is the fundamental problem of moralism and legalism. Sadly, James and the elders, they end up boasting more in the number of believers than the quality of believers. And beyond this, the reality that this church is filled with legalists, we're told that many of them were very suspect of Paul. Rumors had been circulating, had been getting back, filtering their way through the church, that Paul had been teaching Jews who lived in Gentile areas to forsake Moses. Mo, to forsake Mo. And did not circumcise their children? To not walk according to the customs? You know, the irony is that none of those things were true. According to Romans 4, 5, and 6, which Paul's already written and sent off by this point, it was clear that Paul did not have a problem with Jews enjoying their Jewish customs as long as their obedience to these things didn't foster the idea that they were somehow more righteous than those who didn't. You want to circumcise your kids? Go for it. You want to obey the customs? Right on. As long as you know, that doesn't make you any better in the eyes of God than someone who isn't. Because that's textbook legalism. You know, Paul's fundamental message was, it was simple and clear. All men, Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, male, female, doesn't matter. All men are not only saved the same way, but are made perfect through the same mechanism. That being faith in Jesus, not works. Tragically, it would seem from the text that the leadership of this church, while maybe rejecting these rumors internally, had done nothing to publicly defend Paul. I think that's so sad. But hey, not to worry. They have a plan. Verse 23, therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who've taken a vow. Take them, be purified with them, pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly, keep the law, but concerning the Gentiles, because there was a group of them that were with Paul who believe, we've already written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. <laughs> this does not start out very well. Do what we tell you. Honestly, if you ever hear those words come out of the mouths of leadership at a church, you should leave that church immediately. Instead of pointing to Jesus, and instead of presenting what his word has to say about issues like this. What do these men do? They command Paul to do what they wanted him to do. What they thought was best. What they assumed would solve the problem. That's a dangerous dynamic. You're not to follow me. You're to follow Jesus. You're not to obey church leadership independent of the word of God. As a matter of fact, if we ever ask you to do something contrary to the word of God, you should stand up and revolt. That's your right as a Christian. The crux of their instruction 
what's sad about it is it wasn't to clear Paul's name. It wasn't even really to stand for the truth. The crux of their instruction was all designed to placate instead to the sensitivities of the legalists in their church and the moralists in their midst by having Paul publicly demonstrate, quote, that he also walked orderly and kept the law. Because this church feared offending the Jews in Jerusalem or the Jews, Jewish believers zealous for the law, they instruct Paul to join these four men who had taken a vow, to take the vow with them, sponsor them, pay their expenses. The whole exercise, it's all about appearance. Keeping up appearance. They wanted the people to see that Paul believed keeping the law and obeying the customs was important. But here's the problem. Paul didn't believe obeying these things were important. The reality is that they were asking Paul, commanding Paul to compromise on the fundamentals of his core beliefs in order to build a bridge with those who found those beliefs offensive. We're about to see this, the sad thing, Paul obeys them. He does this. And you know what happens? It doesn't work at all. It blows up into a riot. It's a total disaster. And you know why? Capitulating never works. Understand this, it, it might be tweet worthy, that's up to you. Capitulating to and compromising with those diametrically opposed to your beliefs will never lead to victory or attain peace, but will only yield a quicker defeat. Okay, that might not be 140 characters, that might be too many, but I think it, it proves the point. So Paul took the men next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. <laughs> what? Paul, Paul is about to have an offering placed for purification. That defies Romans and Galatians. For that's not how any man has ever been purified. So when the seven days were almost ended, God's like, that's not happening. <laughs> not gonna let you do it, Paul. Jews from Asia. Uh, the Jews from Asia. That's, that's Ephesus, not like the Orient. But they see Paul in the temple. And they stir up the whole crowd and they lay hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, this place. Furthermore, he has brought Greeks into the temple, has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with Paul in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. And all of the city was disturbed. And the people ran together, seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So much for building a bridge. Though Paul had come to reach the Jews, which he wasn't called to do, and he had compromised his beliefs in order to make peace with his critics, which was ill-conceived, as soon as they saw him, he's trying to be a good, a good Jewish boy. But as soon as they saw him, Jews from Asia stirred up the crowd. A mob ensues. 
They accuse him of being against the Hebrew people, the law, and the temple. Obviously, things Paul wasn't against, which is interesting. You know, their strategy here is that they used things Paul was for in order to accuse him of things that he must obviously be against. That same strategy is used against Christians today. I believe that marriage should be between one man and one woman, that God has sanctified that. You're a homophobe. You hate gay people. What? Huh? Like, no, I just, I just, like, huh? Like, how do we, I believe that life begins at conception. You hate women. Huh? Like, what? Like, the same strategy they're using then they use today. Taking things that you're for to then make an argument of the things you must obviously be against. If you support traditional marriage, you must really hate gay people. That's not true. That's not true at all. You know, same strategy that was used for Jesus and Stephen. As a matter of fact, it was the same three things that, that those men were accused of when they were executed, being against the people, against the law, and against the temple. Interesting that now Paul finds himself the recipient of these accusations. Now, verse 34, 31, when they were seeking to kill him, so this is not, you know, getting together, working out our differences. They were seeking to kill him. News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and he ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near, took him, commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the multitude cried one thing and some another. Typically how a mob works. So when the commander couldn't ascertain as to the truth because of the tumult, he commanded that Paul be brought into the barracks. Well, when they had reached the stairs, they had to carry Paul. The soldiers had to carry Paul because of the violence of the mob for the multitude of the people followed after crying away with him. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? And he replied, you can speak Greek? This was perfect Koine Greek. And then he asked, are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion, led 4,000 assassins into the wilderness? Paul's like, no, <laughs> I'm not that guy. Um, I'm a Jew from Tarsus, Cilicia, citizen of no mean city. I, I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. Now, we're not going to be able to look at the sermon this morning, sermon that Paul gives to this mob. We'll, we'll get to that our next time together. But for our purposes this morning, I want to point out that the result of this sermon is that everything Paul will say, as awesome as it is, falls on deaf ears. Like, like the reality is that Paul will stand there boldly and present the gospel. And you know how many people will be converted as a result of it? A big squadoosh. Zero. As a matter of fact, all Paul will accomplish is just stirring up the mob even more. He gets to Jerusalem. And his time there was unfruitful. 
and it was counterproductive? I mean, my conclusion is Paul should have never come to Jerusalem. He ignored, I believe, the Spirit's constant warnings. He ignored his friend's loving counsel. He ignored his God-given calling. And ultimately, he compromised some of his core beliefs. In the end, not only was his time in Jerusalem unfruitful, but he now finds himself in prison. So why is it that Luke, our author, why would Luke present Paul in such a negative light? Like, like if it's true that Paul was in rebellion, if he was resisting the Holy Spirit, if he wasn't doing what he should be doing, like why would, why would Luke write it this way? I mean, he was his buddy, right? Why not, you know, gloss over a few things? I, I think there's two points, and before I get to them, I, I, I do love this about Scripture, that even our heroes, when they mess up, we're told about it. And that's to let us know that it's only by God's grace that we're anything, that we're sufficient of nothing in and of ourselves. Our sufficiency comes from God and God alone, that the same spirit that worked in Paul is the same spirit that works in us. Like, I love the fact that our heroes in the Bible are flawed people. Why? Because we're all flawed people. And if God can do awesome things through them, in spite of them and not because of them, that means that God can do awesome things in and through us. But the two reasons I think Luke would present it this way. First, kind of the macro perspective. We've presented the book of Acts as a defense brief, haven't we? Paul will stand trial before Nero. Luke, the gospel, and Acts are presented to be documents explaining how Christianity was started, who Jesus was, how it started spreading, how it jumped from Jewish communities to Gentile communities, Paul's role in it, because he was the man standing there. But the two purposes were on one end, it was to explain Paul's role, but it was also to explain what Christianity was. Christianity was just as much on trial as Paul in regards to Nero. So as a defense brief presented before Nero, by presenting Paul's trip to Jerusalem as being in rebellion against God and contrary to the wishes of every other Christian he encountered, I think to some degree, as kind of an expert lawyer, Luke is separating Paul from the rest of Christianity. I mean, think about it. If Paul was ultimately found guilty of intentionally stirring up unrest, inciting the Jewish mob, at least the evidence would be presented that Paul had gone to Jerusalem on his own volition and that the rest of Christianity had actively tried to prevent him from going, not wanting to see the turmoil that inevitably occurred. Secondly, I think Luke presents Paul in this perspective because the rest of the story would serve to demonstrate an incredible reality. And that is the reality that God can still accomplish his will and the life of people despite our disobedience. God could still work in the life of Paul even when he had resisted the Spirit. I believe if you go back to Acts chapter 19, Paul's in Ephesus. I think God wanted Paul to go from Ephesus to minister to the Gentiles in Rome. And instead, he heads the opposite direction. 
wanting to minister in, to the Jews in Jerusalem. Go to Rome, minister to Gentiles. But Paul's like, ah, I'll do that, but I want to go to Jerusalem first because I love the Jewish people. And then I'm convinced that Jesus is like, okay, you can board that boat. And that he uses the mob and Paul's subsequent incarceration to take him where he was supposed to go all along. It's kind of as though that Paul pulls a Jonah. You're supposed to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to go the other way. And what happens? He gets swallowed by a great fish who takes him and spits him up where he was supposed to be all along. I was talking to Creighton about uh, this as we were wrestling with with the the passage, and Creighton was like, so the mob was kind of like Paul's great fish. And I think so. To take him where he was supposed to go. And I think there's evidence that Paul understood he had messed up in coming to Jerusalem in defiance of the Spirit's leading. Just, Just flip a page forward. In Acts 23, verse 11, we're told, this is like the next day. This is not too far down. As Paul sat in jail, we're told that the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified to me in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness at Rome. Be of good cheer. That's the first thing Jesus says to Paul. Why would Jesus say right from the beginning, Paul, be of good cheer? Well, because he was depressed. He needed to be cheered up which is weird, right? Because wait a second, like we've seen Paul end up in a prison, a dark prison, worshiping God. Why? Because he knew with 100% certainty that's exactly where God had him, that that's where he was supposed to be. God had called him to go to Macedonia. He ends up in Philippi. He ends up in a jail. Him and Silas are praising God because he knows I'm right where the Holy Spirit wants me. Now he's in another jail and he's bummed out. Why? Because he knew he had messed up. And yet Jesus comes to him and says, it's all right, bud. It's all right. Be of good cheer. I'm still going to get you where I want to take you. I mean, it's going to look different. If you had just been obedient, it would have been an easier journey, but I'll still get you there. And I love this. I love it. Your mess-ups, and Paul illustrates this, are never too big for Jesus to clean up. This morning, you might stumbled your way into church, bummed. Because you know this week, you messed up. And yet Jesus speaks to you. He says, be of good cheer. I'm much bigger than whatever mistake you made. What's amazing about the rest of our story is that it's based in this idea that Jesus has an uncanny ability to be able to route our path to his ultimate destination, even when by our own mistakes, we've taken a misguided detour. Paul shouldn't have gone there. Should have gone to Rome, but he'll still get there because we serve a God who is amazingly gracious. 
So, Father, 